0: Living in retrospect is a bad idea, and sometimes we let our same old stories hold us back from the new adventure God has for us. But here's the truth God wants to restory us, transforming our tales of tragedy into epics to anticipate. In this podcast, Mary DeMuth interviews people who have lived through God's powerful restory process, where they've discovered healing, joy, and a brand new perspective. So let's shed that old, painful story and find the freedom we've been longing for. The ReStory Podcast starts now.
1: The ReStory Show, Season 2, Episode 12. Today's podcast is brought to you by booklaunchmentor.com. If you're an author needing to polish your book before you launch it, or you need coaching and help to launch your staggering work of genius, which I know it must be, check out the services at booklaunchmentor.com. I've been working on this for a few months now, and I'm hoping to have the course up soon. And so check it out, if you're, especially if you're about ready to launch a book. Today, I am welcoming my friend Jimmy Hinton to the podcast, and he has... One of the hardest, most redemptive stories I have ever heard. And it's one of those kind of stories that's arresting, literally and figuratively. So without um, letting the cat out of the bag about what this is about, I'm going to let Jimmy tell his story. This is a longer episode because it's such an involved story, but I just pray you would hang in. With us, and he has some really great things to say at the end and some awesome advice. So, without further ado, here is Jimmy. Hey everyone, it's Mary with The Restory Show, and I'm really excited to have my guest on today, Jimmy Hinton, and he's got an incredible story. And of course, I always say that every week, but this one is completely true. Um, I met him actually a couple of years ago. We talked on the phone because I found out about what he had gone through. And then we are both part of trying to help churches become safe places around the United States for children and abuse victims. And so we got to meet in person a couple of weeks ago, and he's the real deal. And his story has broken my heart, but also broken it wide open. So Jimmy, thank you so much for coming to the Restory Show today.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for having me.
1: It's great to have you. So let's share, why don't you share a little bit about growing up? I know you have like 5,000 siblings and a mom and a dad. So go ahead and tell your story of your upbringing.
0: Yeah. So I'm the middle child of 11. I'm number six. So five older, five younger.
1: Wow. You're the linchpin.
0: Yeah. And (laughs) uh, so the order is a girl, five boys, two girls, a boy and two girls. So I was sandwiched at the very bottom of, of all these boys. And, uh, so I did, it's true what they say about the middle child. I got beat up a lot. <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're supposed to be the funniest too. So there you go.
0: <laughs> hey, thank you. Yeah. I grew up in a place where, uh, it literally was not on the map until, uh, I think like the late nineties, I started seeing it appear on, on the first maps. Uh, but now it's very much on the map um, Shanksville, Pennsylvania. It's where Flake 93 went down on September 11th. Uh, exactly two miles from the house that we grew up at. Wow. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, boy, I don't know. I don't know, uh, what all to tell you. I, I, I went into ministry. Uh, I'm the only one out of all 11 kids who went into ministry. And that was as a direct influence, uh, that my dad had on me. Uh, he was my hero and, and, uh, out of all 11 kids, I was probably the closest to him. And, um, of course he was in ministry and, uh, ironically I'm back up in Pennsylvania preaching at the church that, uh, he preached at for 27 years. So it's, uh, it's my home congregation and we just have, uh, siblings all over the place. Um, uh, we have some in Arkansas and Tennessee and a lot of us back up in Pennsylvania and we're all very close, very tight knit family. And, uh, everybody's incredibly different.
1: <laughs> it's funny how that is.
0: I'm of course, the normal one. <laughs> yes, of course.
1: And this is, you know, being publicized. So, you know, it's published and true that you are the normal one.
0: Yeah, not by a long shot.
1: <laughs> so you grew up and you ended up going to college and describe how that worked and how you kind of chose your major and everything.
0: Yeah. So I went to a, a private Christian University in Arkansas, and uh, I skipped my senior year not be- not because I'm smart, uh, but because I couldn't wait to get out of school. Um, <laughs> you I've, just I've like always skipped hated skipped out. <laughs> yeah, so um, I'm kind of an oddball. Uh, I never did like school, and never liked homework. Never liked reading. It was always very mediocre, and went to college. And see, there were five of us boys there at the same time. Wow. So because I skipped my senior year and just we were packed so closely together, um, it ended up that there were five of us at at college at the same time. So, yeah, I uh, I was undecided for the first two years. So I took gen eds because I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do. And um, then one day uh, uh, my advisor said, it's time to pick a major. And I said, uh, right now? (laughs) He said, yep, right now. So I literally just picked one out of thin air and I said, okay, business management. So uh, for one semester, I suffered through business management (laughs) (laughs) courses and hated it even worse. So at the end of that, I thought I better get serious about what I want to do. And uh, I prayed about it and decided that I wanted to go into Bible, but um, didn't want to be a pulpit minister. And that was kind of the direction that I was moving towards. So I graduated in 2001, and at the seminary where, where I went in Memphis, uh, the recruiter was pretty hard after me, and, and I didn't know why, because I hated school, and my grades were were very average. And he just said, I, I see something in you. I see something in you. So I said, well, let me take a year off to think about it. So I started driving truck. I drove traffic trailer. <laughs> of course trailer you four. did. <laughs> <laughs> I tell people it's what every Bible major does when they graduate.
1: <laughs> <laughs> drive a truck for a year.
0: <laughs> yep, drive truck. So 135,000 miles and, and 364 days later, I hung up truck driving and, and started seminary. And uh, for the first time in my life, I made the dean's list and Whoa. got very serious about school.
1: <laughs> hmm. Interesting.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I loved it. Then after, after I graduated, my wife and I lived in Arkansas and uh, we just didn't like it. We were ready to get out. And so very ironically, my, my mom and dad had separated, and we felt sorry for my dad. And so we moved up to Pennsylvania because of him and actually moved him in with us. We'd only been married for, see, a little over a year. and Then we moved him in with us, and uh, for two years he lived with us. And then, then we bought a home, and my wife said, uh, we're buying a new home, and your dad doesn't come with it. So we left him behind and and moved into our house. And that was in two thousand nine. And then in uh, two thousand eleven, I had a a, a young adult uh, woman, somebody who I'm very close to, called me up on a Friday and said, "Can I come up and talk?" To you? And uh, I, I I scheduled an appointment. And she came in and she was just trembling and and she handed me a piece of paper hmm. and and just broke down sobbing. And so I I started to read it and it was an email correspondence between her and somebody else describing how my dad had sexually abused the two of them Mm. um, whenever they were little kids. And so of course I I was absolutely devastated and I mean, just felt like throwing up and, and you know, the whole deal. And my dad was attending um, my congregation at that time.
1: So he was not the pastor at this time. You were the pastor. Correct. Okay.
0: Yeah. So I ended up, Not only doing what I said, I swear I would never do, which is preaching, (laughs) (laughs) but then I I really swore that I would never wind up at my my home church, and that's (laughs) where I was and where I still am.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Be wary of what you promise and say.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes. God always has other ideas.
1: So you had this meeting, and you just heard for the very first time, no inkling, no idea. And this didn't is have a, a f- clue. This is the first time that this has ever come up.
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah, I had absolutely no idea. So th- the only way that I can describe it is that it was that it was Holy Spirit led at that time. Uh because I didn't know what to think. I didn't know what to say. I mean, what do you do in a in a in a moment like that? And so in that moment, I just remember telling her th- three words that that I think ended up becoming the three most important words that she's probably heard. And I said, I I believe you. And I said, I'm, I'm going to do whatever it takes. And I said, I, I may lose my job. Uh, and I just didn't know. I said, we may lose our house. Uh, we may have to move to another state, uh, but I don't care. I said, I will do whatever it takes to turn him in and to make this right and to make it stop. And so that that was late Friday afternoon and my wife was uh, teaching in, in the public school at the time and so she came home uh, I had gotten home just before her and my wife said uh, you look terrible that was the first thing she said when she walked in the door she said you look terrible and I said there's, there's a good reason for that and so I, I told her what um, had just been disclosed to me and I said you know, I got, I got to sort things out and figure out what to do. And at that time I, I knew nothing about reporting process. And I didn't even know that I was a mandated reporter. So I didn't have a clue, didn't have a clue. And so I tried to unpack that for about 20 minutes with my wife. And then I had to rush off to, to do a wedding rehearsal for one of my church members and, and a very close friend. So on Saturday uh, I performed the wedding and at the dinner after the wedding, I was sitting at a round table and we had seating assignments so my wife was to my left this young lady who disclosed to me was to my right and right directly across the table from us was my dad oh my gosh yeah yeah so we were the only three people at that time who who knew and we were just just it was so awkward and and trying you know trying to pretend and and trying to be happy for this couple when inside I was just just crushed absolutely broken into a million pieces and uh and you can't carry that into when you officiate the happiest day of somebody's life and and it was quite literally the worst day of my life and so there was there was just this big chasm between those two worlds and uh so on Sunday I got up and and did what what pastors do <laughs> and I had to preach and I went home and just collapsed I was just exhausted and so I, I, I called mom and uh, had talked to her. And I said, I said, Mom, I, I, I don't know what your thoughts are. But I said, I'm going to be at the police station first thing Monday morning. And she said, Jimmy, I'm going to be by your side. And so we we went into the police station together. And I just remember, I remember how hard that was, because I was still trying to wrap my mind around the idea. I I, I knew that these gals had no reason to make this up, and so I knew it was true. Uh, but I was still trying to wrap my mind around how how my my childhood hero was capable of doing that, and I had no idea how many victims he had. I only knew of these two, and so we we were talking to the to the detective um, who I actually knew and and am friends with, and so that made it awkward. And we kept talking about my dad uh, as a it was a hypothetical. And so we said, you know, suppose we knew this guy um, that had done these things. And she just stopped us. And she was very blunt. And she said, you and I both know that you didn't waste your time. And you're sure not wasting my time to come in here to talk to pick my brain about hypotheticals. She said, who are you talking about? Wow. Yeah. And we still wouldn't disclose. And I just remember her response. And at first, I, I was just so I felt bad for my dad. Isn't that strange? I still felt really sorry for him. And and she said, you can either do this the hard way or you can do it the not so hard way. And she said, the hard way is I interview every single person in all of your social circles that you've known your entire life. And I will take time to interview every single one of them until I find out who you're talking about. And she said, the other way is you give me a name. I call that person in here and I interview this person and find out how many victims he has. And so that was whenever we we gave my dad's name. Wow. Yeah.
1: Was and she surprised so, at the name?
0: Uh no. 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 And that that was that was surprising to me was how calm and just positive that he had dozens of victims. She said she said I can assure you he's been doing this his whole life. He's doing it right now and she said he's got lots and lots of victims. And and I was a little bit offended by that cuz at the time I didn't I didn't have a clue. And uh now I understand exactly how she knew and why she knew. So uh later that evening, uh, of course that day he was dad was served papers that said he wasn't allowed to go anywhere near minors, uh that he was under criminal investigation. And so who do you think received that phone call from my dad?
1: Hmm.
0: <laughs> you. So that's right. <laughs> So not only was I, I the person who the abuse was disclosed to, I was also the person who had to turn him in. Mm. I ended up being the person who he confided in because he didn't know I turned him in. Wow. And then I started fielding phone calls from um, from victims
1: mm. um,
0: because apparently they started talking to each other and and were telling each other for the first time. They had never told anybody. And so because because mom and I... Had had turned him in, they just knew that we were trusted and because I'm the pastor, <laughs> I guess people especially trust pastors <laughs> or something <laughs> but But I started getting phone calls and um just hearing things in incredibly graphic detail that my dad had done to them uh, when they were very young, and I tell people I still carry the scars of of hearing those things, but those scars are nothing compared to the deep wounds that those victims still carry uh, from the abuse that dad had. So I just had to sit and listen and and validate that what happened to them was real hmm. um, and that somebody believed them. And, and so I'm hearing these things about my own dad. So then my wife and I uh, had to figure out, okay, now now the next phase is how do we tell the family?
1: Well, back up just a little bit. So when your dad called you, did you have a conversation with him and did he disclose
0: i i just- I described this it was a really bizarre thing, and i I don't know how else to describe this, except um if you've ever heard Charlie Sheen talk um when he just babbles nonsense, yes, that was what it was like. whoa, um he called me over to his to his apartment and he and mom were were separated or maybe divorced by that time, but he just kept saying man i'm I'm in trouble, I'm going to spend the rest of my life in prison and i said I said, Why, what did you do and of course just completely plain dumb. He said, uh, well, it's, it, it's not that I did anything. It's that I just, well, if this were any other country, the things that I did to, to those kids, I mean, not that I did, uh, but I spent time and, and, and he was just rambling on yeah, and he said, yeah. if it were any other country, um, what
1: kind of creepy country if, would if, that if, be?
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so he said, if it were any other country, it, it would be fine. The things I did, but this stupid country i'm in deep crap and i'm going to spend the rest of my life in prison and and he never did say exactly what he did but it was just talking nonsense all night and then i remember he i just asked him point blank i said i said are you thinking about killing yourself and he just broke down crying and and he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out he pulls out bullets and now my bizarre world just turned into like hyper bizarre world because the very man, basically I'm sitting across from the devil who also is, is my spiritual mentor and hero. Who's also my biological father It's just all these weird emotions. And I'm I'm thinking, okay, now well now I can't be responsible for the death of, of this man, even though I'm, I'm, I, I hate his guts right now. I can't be responsible for, walking away. And so I called my wife up and, and I, I tried to get him checked into the hospital and, and and he refused. He wouldn't do it. And I called my wife and, and I said I said, you know, he's he's thinking about committing suicide and and I think I better spend the night at his apartment. Needless to say that didn't that didn't sit well with my wife. And I understand why. And so it's it was just so bizarre. And then, and then we had to wade through Calling individual family members, and so mom and I started to divvy up which siblings we thought would be most receptive to which one of us. And and then in in the middle of all that, this is all within like a week a week time frame. Uh, We took our church down down to one of our private Christian universities in West Virginia, and the incoming president was best friends with my dad, and they were college roommates at in Oklahoma. And so the incoming president was literally the first person that we saw whenever whenever we got out of out of our the van that we took down and his wife was scheduled to to speak at our church i don't know a few weeks after after that visit that we did down at the college and so he came up and he said how how is your dad doing he said did you know that my wife is coming up and she's speaking she's speaking to your ladies at church and how's he been and what's he up to these days and and he's just going on and on and i just the whole time i'm thinking i just i would I want to be dead right now, and it was. It, 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 I couldn't tell him anything because we hadn't even told the whole family yet. And so, while we're down there at the, at the university that weekend, I start getting phone calls from from some of my siblings because apparently they started calling each other, and, and and I started getting phone calls saying, "Is it true?" Well, then, then we went back home, and then we had to. My wife and I had to figure out how. Okay, now how do we tell the church? And then we, and then we started. Dad started uh, telling me, and he wasn't arrested yet. He was still free. There was about a two, two or three week period where, uh, from the time we turned him in, uh, until he got arrested, and so he was scot free, and he kept bumping in not only to to people from church, but he was bumping into to victims, and they didn't know at that point that that their kids were sexually abused by by my dad, and so they're bumping into him out in public and it was just it's like I can't describe to you the 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 bizarre world and so then we had to wait through okay how do we tell the church and then we had we had a couple families who um dad told me who the victims were and a couple families that we were incredibly close to and then we had to make a decision okay do, do we tell them before the investigators tell them and and one of the families, we, we ended up driving over to the house. And I, I tell people that was the longest mile that I've ever driven. And so we pulled into their driveway and I just remember just sobbing my eyes out. And I looked at my wife and I said, How how do I tell them mm. that my dad raped their little children? How do I tell them that? You know, that's stuff they don't teach you in seminary.
1: Hmm.
0: And so we ended up telling that family and, and 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 the dad's response, and I don't blame him, he said he said, Where's your dad? I'm gonna kill him. You know, and now it's just there's so many levels to this. And then in the middle of that we had to figure out how do we tell our church family? And who do we tell? And when do we tell them? And we didn't we didn't know if there were victims at at, at that point in the church. And so there are just so many, so many questions and, and trying to minister in, in, in the middle of, of that when you're just a complete disaster. I don't know, I can't describe how difficult it is. And I remember one day, I was just lying on my living room floor, and this was probably two or three weeks after, after I turned dad in. And I just remember the weight of all of it coming, coming, crushing down on me. And I, I was literally laying in fetal position on my living room floor, just sobbing and just saying, God, what, how, how in the world do you allow this many children to be harmed by, by one man?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And how? How? Why did you allow it? And how did you? How did you not stop it? And how did we not see it? Mm-hmm. And that became a haunting question too. And so, so well, we ended up. The, the, the detective was was really incredible, and she tipped me off on a Friday. She called me up and she said, "She said, Jimmy, we're making the arrest this weekend, and it's time to tell your church."
1: Mm. Oh, that was good. Yeah, that she gave you that guidance because it would be hard to figure that out.
0: <laughs> yeah, so so at least I mean that was the one silver lining in in all of it is that we had the timing right. We talk, I told the church on Sunday, and on Monday it was in the newspaper, and I don't know. It just started a whole process of of I can't say healing because it, we weren't anywhere near the healing phase at that point. It was just just waiting wading through all this garbage and trying to figure it out. And and so I started researching child sexual abuse in churches and and, and was just coming up empty handed. And, and I went to school for research. I mean, they, a seminary makes researchers out of you. And I, I was finding nothing. And I'm like, surely this isn't the first time that this has been an issue in the church. And I'm trying to find resources and I'm trying to find help and I'm trying to find people who who've been, who've been there and who've written about it and who've talked about it. And I was coming up completely empty handed. And so that, that kind of started a, a journey of, of searching and trying trying to figure out because it, it, it became a haunting thing for me. How did we miss it? We have a family full of nurses and, and medical doctors, all of us, or almost all of us, um, have gone to college and, and hold, some hold multiple degrees. I mean, you're not talking a family of dumb people, and none of us saw it. And so that became a very haunting thing for me. And so that began began a pretty lengthy journey that, that say, I'm still just as, just as determined as I was five years ago to really get into the mind of a pedophile and, and figure out how do they trick people? How do they fool them? how did, you know What techniques are they using? Uh, never mind the behavior. I want to know their techniques. I want to know... I want to know what they did, when they did it, how they did it. And so I lived and breathed and and even slept pedophilia. And that's a bizarre thing. So, yeah, anyway, (laughs) that's my story in a nutshell. (laughs) Here we are.
1: Here we are talking about. So just give the listeners a little snapshot of the hearing. And um, I don't know if he pled or if there was a trial or how that worked. But then like where your dad is now and what kind of things you're doing to try to pick his brain? Because I know you've been doing that as well.
0: So he spent, uh, that was in July, July 29th is whenever the abuse was disclosed to me. Uh, July 29th of 2011. And then we turned it in on Monday, whatever, whatever that date was. The 29th just sticks out in my head because that was, that was the day that I found out my dad was an abuser. So a a year drug on, he was in County, uh, County lockup and i visited him once a week and i was the only family member who did so and nobody else had any contact with him and during that year he still didn't know that it, that it was mom and i who turned him in wow yeah so i just started hearing some things that that really surprised me and his interactions like he never really talked about the victims much at all um he just talked about how he was going to church at at, at the jail and he was just he was loving going to church and I thought this this is a bizarre thing because here's a man who's probably going to spend the rest of his life in prison and he's like in his own fantasy world.
1: And it's all about him.
0: Sure. And, and every now and then he would talk about how uncomfortable the jail was, how hot it was and, or or, um, people weren't putting money into his commissary account. You know, you talk about things like that and that, you know, back then that surprised me now, now it makes sense. But, uh, but those sorts of things surprised me anytime he did mention victims it was just in passing and it was, yeah, I hope they're doing okay. He's, but I want you to know, and he would look right at me and we're, you know, we're talking on the phone through the glass. I want you to know that, that what I did to the, to all those little girls was just so he said it was so minor. And he said it was, it was light touching. And and he said, I'm sure they're all fine. And he, and he had told me that multiple times. So fast forward to 2012, uh, he pled guilty. He found out, just a few days before his sentencing that mom and I had turned him in. He was obsessed about his discovery package. He just had to have that. And by that time I had spent enough time with him that I knew why he wanted to know who turned him in and he wanted to know how he got caught because he was obsessed about that. He talked about it almost every visit when I went to see him. I wonder who turned me in. I wonder who did it. Oh my goodness. Yeah. He was just, just obsessed with it. Mm. So he found out a couple of days before or a few days before his sentencing. So he was sentenced, I think it was June 12th, 2012, which happened to be the same week of the Sandusky trial.
1: Wow. Um,
0: and it was also, what was that? Um, it was three days before Father's Day. So nice little Father's Day treat for our family. Uh, It's just, you know, the irony is just, it's just so, so deep and and the hurt and and the pain. And it just, it brings up so many different emotions because it is just so ironic. Three days before Father's Day, the person who we all practically worshipped gets a sentence and he got, he got a 30 to 60 year mandatory minimum, which means um, he cannot be eligible for parole before he puts 30 years in. Wow so he'll be 92 years old uh, when he's first eligible for parole wow so yeah i hope i answered you your did question. so
1: yeah. one of the things i've been reading your mom's blog and uh she kind of details i'll put i'll put a link in the show notes so she details what it was like to be married to him which was in a completely different situation than being a child of him yeah and this is something i i wanted to bring out for people that are listening Because I think we always think that pedophiles and abusers are like scary looking people. And in fact, your dad had the ability to be very extremely, overwhelmingly charming in public and to his own children, not to his wife. Sure. How have you been able to kind of uncover that? And what? how can you help parents today now with the knowledge of what you know about your dad and how he operated?
0: Yeah. So... I would come to a, a theological crisis. Um, <laughs>
1: yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> being,
0: being a theologian, <laughs> I just came, I came to this major crisis and I was like, okay, what in the world, all these passages that talk about uh, wolves and sheep's clothing and, and the enemy and the devil. And I mean, it's just all through the Bible from cover to cover. And I was like, yeah, every, I ha- I literally have to throw out everything that I know about evil people and, and and church people, I say that church people Christians are, are the worst at sanitizing the Bible. We Christianize everything, and so the person who 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 curses in public, those are the evil people, those are the you know those people, and we have no idea how to how to ascribe levels to sin, and so we to make us feel better, we equalize sin. And one of the worst cliches, and I just it drives me up a wall now. And I used to say it: a sin is a sin is a sin. All sin separates us from God. That part is true. But not all sins are equal in scripture. And and not all consequences to sins are, are equal in scripture. And God puts incredible conditions on his people from cover to cover. And so you know, we just have all these cliches that help us make make us feel better about other people. And and so we just say, well, if I'm deserving of, of grace, so are these people. And we just put that across the board for everybody. And, and we demand absolutely nothing of people. And so anybody can come in and they can say, well, you know, I'm, I'm sorry for what I've done. And we just assume that because they said it, they, they're they living it. And so that became pretty evident to me. Uh, the other thing is how crafty the the devil is. And so many of the sins in in scripture, the worst sins, the ones that are that are spoken about the worst and have the harshest punishments are sexual sins. And and you look at scripture and and I think probably the the biggest reason is that sex has incredible it it allows you to hold incredible power over people. And so sex ends up becoming about uh, power, position and privacy. And so how do you poison how do you poison a person to the very core? If, if if I were the devil and I were to poison somebody at the deepest level, what would I use? I would use something that's supposed to be intimate, that's supposed to be pure, that's supposed to be holy, that's supposed to be meant for one person or well, two people, you know, a man and a woman. I would take that and I would I would reverse uh or rewind the tape. I would go back in time to a time when a child is the most innocent and pure and holy. And I would really screw that up and I would defile it. I would poison it and I would make that, I would make that child feel emotionally invisible. I would make them feel spiritually invisible and worthless and stupid. And, and I would take away their voice and it's exactly what the devil's doing. And so the way to do that is not to come in and grab kids from the park Though there are some people who do it, but the way to do it is to be the person who's closest to that person in their life. And so when when the devil comes in, he's not coming in looking like a monster. He's not coming in looking like a deadbeat. He's very rarely, and it does happen. You know, you have people of all different kinds living in the world, but but your typical child molester, your typical pedophile across the board is just the nicest, kindest, most giving, most generous, um, wisest person who you can ever meet, and he's the person who you're going to go to for advice. He's the person who's going to be your spiritual mentor. He's the person who's just going to be, you know. So we're not just talking about social charm. We're we're talking about we're talking about spiritual charm. We're talking about people who come into the churches, and you know, when I consult with churches. Uh, I started up my organization, Church Protect, um, and that was a direct result of of just being frustrated with the lack of resources out there for churches. About 80% of the churches that we consult with, about 80% of them, the alleged abusers or the convicted abusers are church leaders. About 80% of them. So we're not talking about, we're not even talking about your church members. We're talking about your church leaders, your elders, your deacons, your your Pastors, your uh, your volunteers at, at Sunday school, eighty percent of the time. So, you know that that's reshaped the way that I that I look at it. Uh, Jesus, when he sends out the 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 seventy, I always tell people in fifteen seconds, Jesus gave them a better crash course than what I learned in my entire seminary career. And Jesus tells them, when you're going out, I'm sending you out <laughs> as little lambs among these wolves, and You're going to have fathers killing sons and sons killing fathers, and there are going to be floggings, and he's naming all these really horrible, disastrous, mean, nasty things, and there's a phrase in there that really caught me off guard, and I had never seen it before. Jesus says, in their synagogues. Isn't that an interesting place where the worst, most vile, most heinous, most evil, most corrupt things are going on? It's not out there in the world. It's in their synagogues. And so Jesus equips them and tells them, you know, you need to be ready for it. You need to be prepared. And and, and then he just sends them. And we deny, we have such strong denial that these things are going on. You know, and Paul talks about spiritual warfare in Ephesians 5. And, like, he's just painting this crazy battle scene. And then there's a phrase in there that just, it just totally rocked my world. Paul says, in the heavenly places. I'm like, wait a second, I wasn't taught that. I was taught that like these battles are going on, you know, in the bad neighborhoods and in these bad places and these big, mean, nasty people. And all through the Bible, it's this stuff is going on right at our dinner tables. You know, Peter talks about it in second Peter chapter two. He says, just talking about these nasty people who come in and they're devouring and it's these, these mean, just nasty sexual sins. And Peter, Peter uses a phrase in there, while they sit at the table with you, while they feast at the table with you. Isn't that crazy? It's all through Scripture. You can't get away from it. So, you know, that's how these guys work.
1: I agree. And I think a lot of times we forget the Scriptures that says, don't even eat with such a person like this. That's right. That's and, right. And for so long the church has majored in grace that they want to be able to sit at the table with a pedophile. They want to be able to say the redemptive story. They want to be able to say it. But the truth is, and I don't, you know, I wish we had hard evidence on this, but it seems to me. And from what I've read, it's like 99 point something percent of pedophiles don't reform. Yeah. And so the safest place for them to be for their sake. And of course, for society's sake is to be behind bars. So we yeah. can't, we can't have especially if they claim to be Christ followers because they are the biggest wolves in sheep's clothing that could ever be running around destroying. And I I think that's the problem of evil that I struggle with too as an abuse victim is just there's so much anger that comes out inside of me and rage about why does this keep happening? And that's why I think you and I are trying to be trying desperately to be on the front lines of this and educating churches and educating people and helping people have their eyes open and instead of having this, this world out there that doesn't want to believe that this happens, so we just pretend it doesn't because it's easier that way, to actually just be honest and say this happens and this is what we need to do about it and this is how we need to protect our children for future generations.
0: Yeah, exactly that's you know i tell people too uh, because the biggest argument the biggest thing that i hear probably most common i'd say 100% of the time uh i can't think of i can't think of an instance where i've come into a church and i've not heard this um when there's an allegation of abuse or when there's a known abuser the idea of separating them from children is so foreign to church leaders and and i receive hostile resistance to that idea the notion that you separate a known offender Um, from somebody else uh, from little children the idea of separating them just is always met with hostile resistance and and the biggest thing that people say is we just can't wrap our minds around um, this guy doing something that bad and and I always come back and and I'm not trying to be arrogant I'm not trying to be I'm not trying to be snotty with them I just very bluntly say Pardon me, but I'm not the person you want to make that argument with. Yeah. <laughs> I I mean, if you want to say, we just feel bad for this guy and he's our best friend. I had one guy say, I run a very good risk if we turn this man in. I run a very good risk of losing my position as, as a pastor. And I just came back and, I, and I, I just, there was rage in my head, but I very calmly said, Jesus is crystal clear. Greater love has no one than this, that somebody lay down their lives for others. That's what love is. And we're told to lay our lives down for others. And if you're not even willing to lay your job down for innocent, we're not even talking about deadbeat people. We're talking about innocent children. If you're not willing to lay your job down for all these little children, then maybe you don't belong in ministry.
1: Hmm. I think that's kind of where I want to wrap this up is this idea of shepherd. And um, as a shepherd of the flock, and you, you are the pastor of your congregation, it's your job, it's your duty as a shepherd. If you just strictly go out into the Middle East and you hang out with a shepherd and a sheep, <laughs> and you see, and, and you don't have to be in the Middle East to do that, you can go around the world and hang out with shepherds and their sheep, their job, their primary job is to protect those sheep from predators. And so it just doesn't make sense to me that we wouldn't do that. And maybe that's just because I'm a victim and I am so passionate about wanting to protect, but I guess that's kind of my admonition out there. And I want to commend you publicly to say you you did take that extreme risk, not only in your pastorate, but in your family. I mean, you didn't know what the result of all this was going to be, but I'm so grateful that there are folks like you in the world who are willing to say, I believe you. Those are very powerful words. I did not get that when I told, and it would have been really great if I did. It would have helped me tremendously. Yeah. So my last couple questions, and one is: What kind of advice would you give to someone who is kind of becoming privy to abuse? They're they're seeing it, or they're they know that it's going on. What what should they do, and ha- how do they cope?
0: I can say this: as, you know, somebody who's um, somebody who's a minister. We're never expecting our best friends, our co-ministers, our co-elders, our co-deacons. We're never expecting the people who we admire the most. And by the way, the the stakes are increased the most uh, when it's somebody who's who's a peer of yours or even a boss of yours, a superior of yours. The stakes are high uh, whenever you report. And that's a lot of why people... uh, A lot of the reason why people don't do it, but I I would just say this. um, I know what it's like to turn somebody in who, who you admire, who you love, who you respect. You have to, have to, have to, have to, have to, have to separate yourself emotionally from that relationship and look at the facts. You have to look at the facts that are before you. And make it make a judgment based on that, and always report. We're not. I I, I know so many churches that try to handle this in house because they talk, they treat it as a as it's a as if it's a sin problem, and so that, which it is, uh, it is a sin problem. But it's also a criminal problem.
1: <laughs> it's a crime.
0: <laughs> it is a felony. Yeah. Child sexual abuse is a felony in all fifty. States. It's one of the one of the few crimes. That is a felony across the board in all 50 states and in almost all 50 states, church leaders are mandated reporters, which means it is illegal to not report. And so you have an obligation to report when you first start finding out and you don't. We want to make sure I wanted to make sure when I reported that that I got this right deep in my heart. I'm like, man, I got I. Could it is is it really true? Is it really true? And so the temptation is to start asking all kinds of people and and to go and to question victims and to question even my dad. I could have gone to my dad and said, "Did you really do this?" I was tempted, but you gotta you gotta use your brain <laughs> and realize an offender will never confess to it when confronted or almost never
1: or minimize it and say or minimize yeah, it, yeah say it was something else completely
0: throw an investigation in the garbage by doing that and so it's not our job to investigate it's our job to report and even when you're related even when you're best friends with the person even when you don't want to believe it it's not your job to investigate it it's your job to report it and if we treated if we treated the, the sexual abuse of minors the way that we treat murders, I don't know of anybody who would walk away from, from a murder or hearing about a murder and saying, well, yeah, but I just don't – I'm not going to be bothered with that. I'm not going to take the time. Or no, he he probably didn't do it. If you hear that somebody may have murdered somebody else, you're going to report it. You're not even going to question it. But yet when it comes to child sexual abuse, we, we excuse it away. And I see it all the time. So that's probably the biggest thing is I, I, would, I would tell people just create yourself emotionally and, and report it. Always report it.
1: So, in the past year, um, how has God restoried you and you and your family?
0: Uh, well, that's a tough question because I've probably struggled the most in the last year. I think God is, has restoried me by really forcing me to trust Him. Hmm. I mean, wholeheartedly. To just trust him in, in, in everything, and and even though I've I've probably struggled the most spiritually and emotionally in in the last year, the biggest boldest opportunities to serve other people has has opened up, and so it's been it's been a, a painfully slow, <laughs> hard, difficult journey, and it's beautiful. Yeah, painfully beautiful. I yeah, guess right.
1: <laughs> painfully fruitful.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, just seeing, seeing the fruits of this labor and, and, and just knowing that um, there are more people like you. And, and I'm just finding more and more people who are, who are just so courageous. And we're all networking together, which is awesome. And um, I've seen more of that in the last year than I have the previous four. Um, where we're all talking to each other, and you know, we're we're not just talking. We're saying how do how do we come together? How do we join forces? And and how do we how do we just let God lead us? And uh, I think I think God's going to make pretty big pretty big waves across this nation, and and really across the world.
1: And what a privilege it is, even though we've been through hell and back, that we can be a part of the restoration. You know that kingdom now in that sense of we can see the kingdom of God come now in our lifetimes um, because of our just broken obedience, I think would be probably the best way of saying it.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, it's incredible to watch God work and, and, and we, we just, we have to trust him that uh, he, he's going to turn things around, but it's, but it's not going to happen by praying and walking away. And I think so often we, we pray and we walk away, uh, that's not trusting God. Uh, that's turning your back on God. And so the, the 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 biggest question that I get from survivors, the biggest question I get is, where was God when I was being abused? And I come back and I say, I th- I think very respectfully, I think you're asking the wrong question. And I think the question we need to be asking is not, where was God when this abuse was and still is going on? My question is, where are God's people?
1: And that's a great way to end this interview. I just so appreciate your story. I know it was hard to share. Um, thank you for being gutsy enough to do so. And thank you also for your work in trying to – I mean, I, I've been working on this kind of stuff in the past week just really intensively, and I can barely go to sleep at night without – Horrors in my mind, you know, and it's a, sure. it's a difficult work to uncover pedophilia and the mindset of a pedophile. And so I commend you for doing it, but I also ask our listeners to pray for you because it's got to be hard.
0: Beyond words.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Jimmy, for being on the Restory Show today. And I, I'm just so grateful for all you've done.
0: Thank you for having me, Mary.
1: Thanks for listening to The ReStory Show. Do you mind if I pray for you now? Lord, what a story. What a difficult story. Thank you for people like Jimmy, and thank you for Jimmy, who are willing to stand up for victims, who are willing to say, not on my watch, who are willing to listen and willing to dignify stories and willing to go to the police. We pray for his family that there would continue, there be continued healing and pray for all of us who struggle sometimes with wondering why bad things happen in this world and why evil people get away with things. Lord, help us to reframe that in our minds in a way that makes sense and also help us to look forward to your kingdom where all the wrongs will be righted and all the justice will prevail and your mercy will triumph over everything. I pray for those listening today that this triggered. I pray that you would just be a gentleman healer and that you would slowly and beautifully unpeel the layers of healing that we all need to go through. And Lord, I confess I still have more fe- more healing to do, especially after listening to that story. So Lord, be with us, be near, and uh, send people into our lives who will love us through our healing. We just need that so much. And I do pray that the body of Christ would be um, the arms and hands and feet of Jesus for victims and people who have suffered under wolves and sheep's clothing. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to know more about today's show with links and extended information, please go to MaryToMeet.com restory 2-12 and may you live a brand new story this week.